You're listening to Piece by Piece. I'm Jude Hill, and this is a space for us all to get curious together about those who are pushing on against all the odds to build peace. What sparks them? What keeps them going? What have they personally lost along the way? But what have they salvaged and discovered? What's working and not working when it comes to reconciliation? And are we ready yet to put words to some of our most difficult stories? In each episode, we get to hear from someone who is actively pursuing peace. We listen in as they share honestly about complex journeys. And we'll try to reflect piece by piece, story by story on how peace is really doing. In this week's Piece by Piece conversation, I'm joined by David Eagleson. David was Deputy Director of Prisons here and has held leadership roles right across the prison service. He recently retired and I spoke to him just before that as he was packing up his desk to step away from work for the final time. David had an interesting vantage point at a key period of our history, working within the maze in the run-up to the release of prisoners under the 1998 peace deal. And it's that pressure cooker time, he says, helped fuel a passion he has for restorative justice. In this chat, he shares some powerful stories of bringing victims and perpetrators together with the aim of helping people find answers and peace. He's now lobbying for restorative practices to be more widely used in prisons. David also opens up about his burdens and hopes for this place and lays down a challenge for much more courageous conversation making to take place. His is a perspective I feel we don't hear too often. So sit back and have a listen to the experiences of David Eagleson. Our chat starts with a shout out to David's wife, Helen, who was saintly enough to give up a lunch break to help sort out a few tech issues we were having. You have an excellent producer um, in the form of your wife there who's helped us out with the tech. So thank you to Helen. David, thank you, first of all, for your time and being willing to share your story and your passion with us. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Just to lead us into the chat, um, first of all, tell us where you feel most at home and why. What I would say is my wife and I have been married for a long time and when we first got married, we had the opportunity to move to Canada um, and we we turned that opportunity down. Um, we decided that we wanted to raise a family here and make a positive contribution to, to society here. Um, uh, and we've done that and we've never regretted that. There's a warmth and a wit about the people here that um, I miss when I'm away. And, and while we love to travel, we love to get home as well. Just to help us get to grips a bit with your story, can you tell us about a period of personal challenge um, for you within the workplace that has really shaped you as a person? Well, in the mid-90s, when coincidentally I became aware, first became aware of the uh, principles and the potential of restorative justice, uh, I was uh, working in the maze prison. And that was a very difficult environment to work in. Um, it was a very negative environment, uh, and it was not a good place to work. Uh, it was it had a very negative atmosphere. There was intimidation. There was violence. There was a threat of violence, uh, and 
uh, it was the only time in my career when uh, I got up in the morning and I wasn't that keen on going to work. Can you describe to us then what that was like when you were within that mentally to try and navigate that that sort of pressure? It was very difficult. Um, you had to be very resilient, but, but what helped was there was a, a strong sense of comradeship. Um, any of the people I worked with, whatever team I was in, we were all very keen to play our part in, uh, in, in the team. And we were conscious that we were providing a, a, a service to wider society. So uh, those kind of things, those positives kept us going. At the time, uh, the prison service was under huge scrutiny uh, because of the political situation. So uh, decisions made within the prison could have an impact on wider society. So uh, you had to be very, very conscious uh, that you were operating in a, a complex and a nuanced political situation. Uh, so um, it, it wasn't like running uh, a prison uh, in another society. Um, mm. Maze was uh, one of a kind. Even now, when you look back, are there things that you would have done differently? Or are you able to kind of leave that where, where it is in the past? No, I think for me, uh, some colleagues are different, but for me, it's, it's best left left there. Yeah. That's how I deal with it. And you're saying about your team at that time being under threat, and you say that quite matter-of-factly, but what was day-to-day work and life like when you had that hanging over you? Um, it was difficult. You have to remember that of all of the prison officers who were murdered or maimed over the years, uh, and uh, 31 officers have been murdered. Um, only one of them was was murdered on duty. So the rest were were murdered in the community by people who had obviously watched their movements and knew where they lived and knew what they drove and so on. So myself and my colleagues were wary even in the community. And then you go into work and, and the atmosphere in there is just as intimidating. So... Um, it was difficult day to day, but as I say, you um, working with good people, good colleagues, strong sense of comradeship, and we thought we were making a contribution to wider society. And did you think at that time about getting out, or was it a case, as you say, you, you were contributing and that's what kept you going? Yes, um, and at that time, I mean, the ceasefires had been announced, and we were in the run-up to the Belfast Agreement, so... As a citizen, I could see that there was uh, potential light at the end of the tunnel and I looked forward to, to getting to that point. And David, what was it like working within the maze then at that point? You've mentioned the Belfast Agreement then when prisoners were released. It was a bit surreal. I mean, many of my colleagues, because of their experience in the, the prison, found it hard to sign up to the notion of the, the prison closing and the, the prisoners in it being released. Um, I took the wider view, um, rightly or wrongly, that uh, it was for the best and the long-term interests of this place. Um, so um, we we made it work. And on those days then when, when prisoners were walking out, what, what were some of the feelings going on within you, I suppose, as you watched that? It was... All a bit surreal. I mean, many of the people who were walking out had um, had committed awful crimes uh, and had been sentenced to very long periods of imprisonment, which they clearly weren't going to serve. But as I say, um, 
for me, I took the wider view that this was um, for the benefit of our society as a whole. And um, for my part, I made it work as best I could. That time for you, David, was obviously a real pressure cooker. What do you feel that you salvaged um, from that experience and, and took on then in the work that you've gone on to do? Well, once I moved to uh, a role and an experience that, that wasn't as intimidating or as pressurised, um, I, I used the experience that I'd been through to make me appreciate even more the opportunities that I had. Uh, and I have used that ever since. As I said earlier, I have experienced waking up in the morning and not particularly wanting to go to work. And then I moved from that to waking up in the morning and couldn't wait to get to work. Um, so, and that's hard to buy. So while it was difficult at the time, uh, I appreciate now the situation I've been in since. Uh, and I, I enjoy my work and I have no problem getting up in the morning and going to work. I'm not sure if it changed me. It, it certainly tested my resilience. It just uh, showed me what I am, I suppose. And you've mentioned now a couple of times the restorative justice side of things, which is your big area of passion. Um, tell us how that works. Well, um, I think the first thing to do would be to, to offer a, a definition of what restorative justice is. And there are many. Uh, but I like the one which is offered by the Restorative Justice Council. And it says that restorative justice brings those harmed by crime or conflict and those responsible for the harm into communication, enabling everyone affected by a particular incident to play a part in repairing the harm and finding a positive way forward. And that, to me, sums up what it is. And where did your interest in that spark, David? Just from my own reading uh, in the in the 90s and just from reading research and, and so on and into it um, I saw the potential but where I was at the time wasn't anywhere that, that, that it could be put to use. And so how did you go about then exploring that and, and bringing that to the fore in your work? Well firstly um, after me is closed I was sent to McGilligan as the Deputy Governor and uh, I uh, I came across like-minded colleagues there uh, and we decided that the best way forward was to, to get some colleagues trained to facilitate restorative meetings between serving prisoners and their victims. Uh, research showed us that victims of crime often have questions that are not addressed in the retributive system and which often only the offender can answer. Uh, Victims also often experience a desire to tell the offender of the impact of the offending on them. And it's also the case the offender sometimes want to explain why they did what they did and to apologise for it. And were people really up for, the, for this at the time or did you have to, to sell it as such? It needed a bit of selling, but um, I think the main selling point was that I was able to produce research that showed that... Um, Victims who experienced restorative justice got great satisfaction from that. And I think that struck a chord with the colleagues I was speaking to. Uh, it showed them that they had potentially the opportunity to, to help victims of crime. 
and to make a difference to the to their lives going forward. Tell us then about some of the moments that you really saw the power of this um, at work. Um, well, one example, um, and it's 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 so typical. An example uh, was that of an elderly woman who had been out for the night and came home to find that her house was being burgled. When she arrived, the the burglars fled. She contacted the police and uh, made a statement to the police. The police investigated and eventually arrested a young man and he went to court and was found guilty uh, and sent to prison. Uh, And that, so far as our retributive justice system goes, is the end of the matter. But of course, this this lady had many questions that she wanted answered that were literally keeping her awake at night. And it was uh, typical of, of many victims of crime. She wanted to know why she had been picked on. She wanted to know if her house had been watched. She wanted to know if the offender had any notion of coming back. Uh, and she wanted to know if uh, he was annoyed that she had gone to the police. So eventually we arranged for her to meet up with the young man in prison and she put those questions to him and he was able to assure her that the burglary was entirely opportunistic. No one had been watching her house. He had been so intoxicated at the time that he had no idea where she lived and even if he did, he had no notion of going back and he completely understood the reason for her going to the police. Uh, and uh, just as a footnote to that story, um, during the conversation, uh, the lady discovered that the young fella had a a passion for cars, and for the rest of his sentence, she arranged for a car magazine to be sent in to him every month. But the main point of the story is, um, after that meeting, she went home with her fears addressed, and when we contacted her, Afterwards, she said that after that meeting, she had the first proper night's sleep she'd had since the burglary. And I think that's Mm. very powerful. And that's just one story. Obviously, you've seen many more. I have, Like that, that fuels what what Mm -hmm. you do and keeps you going. Yes. Yeah. What do you think moments like that, David, and encounters like that can offer us as a society? It brings, to an individual, it brings them peace. It... uh, Let's offenders see the impact of what they've done uh, on their victim. Uh, the retributive system doesn't demand anything of a uh, an offender other than to be produced at court and to serve their time. But uh, restorative work um, makes them address the impact of what they've done. Uh, and there is research to show that Offenders who go through the process are much less likely to re-offend. So that makes our society safer. And within the prison system in Northern Ireland, is this something then that you would like to see become um, more widely taken up? Yes. Um, And it it has been used in other areas other than victim-offender mediation. Um, For example, we we trained uh, a number of staff at McGabry through a local university uh, 
and they were used in various ways. Uh, one of the things we did was set up uh, a landing, uh, which was run on a restorative basis by trained staff. So to give you an example, um, a prison, prison officer opened a cell door one day to find that the, the prisoner who lived in it had covered it in offensive graffiti. Now, what the officer had the opportunity to do if he wanted was to place that prisoner in report and he'd have been put in front of a governor and he would have been punished by losing privileges or so on. But the prison officer took the view that the issue was that the cell was covered in graffiti, so he gave the prisoner the opportunity to paint the cell, which he took, and the matter was closed then. Uh, so that was a very different, very restorative way of going about things. Um, and apart from the day-to-day -day activity on that landing, they also set up restorative circles. And the circles were attended by officers and prisoners who lived and worked on that landing. Uh, and those circles were on, on a restorative basis. Uh, everyone had an equal opportunity to speak, to talk about what was happening on the landing, about new rules that might have been introduced, about rules that might have been relaxed, just about the day-to-day -day running of the landing. And it was facilitated by a manager in the area. And as I say, run on restorative uh, circles basis, so everyone got an equal opportunity to speak. And it was quite astonishing how open people were uh, mm -hmm. and how people both prisoners and officers changed their preconceptions of people. And the outcome of that was that there was much less of an issue with discipline on the land and far fewer alarms and a much mm -hmm. calmer and respectful area to live and work. So that was tried and uh, we got very good results out of that. And for you in moments like that, when you really see the power of it at work and the difference it's making, like personally, um, what does that do for you? It makes me very satisfied uh, and very proud that um, the prison service can make that difference both to people who live and work within the prisons and to uh, the victims that we bring into the prisons uh, uh, who, who are citizens who who after their experience go out with a greater sense of peace than they did when they came in and are able to um, get on with their lives. And how often would it be availed of, David, and is there an increasing appetite for it? It's not availed of that often because some people who would come forward and, and say they would like uh, to avail of it uh, aren't motivated the right way. Uh, you have to be very careful that you don't create a situation where... Uh, a victim takes an opportunity to abuse an offender. Uh, similarly, you have to make sure that uh, offenders don't take an opportunity to, to re-victimise people. So um, we would scrutinise uh, very carefully uh, any circumstances where someone came forward and, and said they would like such a meeting. And um, we uh, don't do far more than we do. But when we do them, they're very resource intensive. The preparation can take months. Um, and you must be very careful that with your preparation that um, it's handled very sensitively and that um, 
you don't do anything that makes the situation worse. From your vantage point, David, and from those you see coming into prisons um, at the moment, where do you feel we are at as a society in terms of peace and reconciliation? I'm not so sure we're, we're in a good place. We still have miles of peace walls, for example. Much of our public housing stock is uh, is not mixed. Um, and still the political arena is dominated by identity politics, which I, I struggle to... Uh, I can't see how that will take us forward. My view is that people in positions of power and influence need to appreciate what an impact words and language can have. They can be very powerful. Uh, and it, it's my experience over the years uh, that I had many formal and informal conversations with paramilitary prisoners serving long sentences. And when we discussed what had got them involved, many, without any prompting from me, told me that they had been strongly influenced by the rhetoric of their political leaders. And I understand that people have strong views, but surely you can be passionate and articulate without being inflammatory. I have been in the system for a long time, and unfortunately I see people coming in uh, as young men who's, uh, in one instance, whose grandfather I locked up as a young prison officer. How are cycles, generational cycles like that, broken from your vantage point? What are, what are some of the, the actions that could be taken to try and disrupt that? I believe in restorative values, and I would like to see a way found that uh, addresses all the harm that's been caused. Um, my experience is that many people who've been harmed only want truthful answers to their questions. For example, we dealt with a woman who, who met the man who with one punch had killed her husband. Um, and she wasn't interested in, in retribution. Uh, mm -hmm. What she wanted to know was the last words that her, her husband had spoken. And if we could see the impact of identity politics receding, I think that would be a, a way forward. I mean, however you identify, we're all similarly impacted on by very topical issues such as poverty, hospital waiting lists, poor educational attainment. And I think those issues need to be addressed. Um, and it may be that, that one of those current issues acts as a catalyst um, for us all to work together. I hope so. Um, and I understand that constitutional issues are important to people, but surely they would be easier to address if our society was, was peaceful and flourishing economically. And in some of those encounters you're describing with victims meeting their perpetrators, that takes so much courage. Is it a case that you feel in wider society we can learn from that? There, there's courage that we can that we can all take, I guess, in 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 our own way. I think so. The people involved are taking risks, but they are supported the whole way through. And people, I think, in wider society need to take risks because. If we don't, I struggle to see how we're, we're going to move forward. Mm. Um, but if we do, I think that the ripple effects are, are so strong, uh, potentially. I mean, if, if I could give an example of how a restorative meeting rippled 
literally right across the world. Um, it was a case where a young woman was in a car being driven by uh, a friend of hers. They were both from uh, a small village. And he crashed the car and the young woman died of her injuries. Uh, her mother struggled very hard to cope with her, her daughter's death. But what particularly distressed her was that there was speculation in the village that uh, after the, the crash, the young man had run off and the mother's anguish was around the fact that she didn't know whether or not her daughter had been alone when, when she died. The young man served a prison sentence and, and during that sentence, the, the mother met him and he was able to uh, describe the events of the night and he was able to assure her that her daughter had not died alone. And what that brought to that woman was incredible uh, and it allowed her to find some peace to, to move her life forward. But as a follow-on from that story, a couple of years later, there was an international restorative justice forum or, or conference held in Belfast. And that mother spoke at the conference of her experience uh, and spoke very powerfully and very eloquently. Uh, I was with her. And afterwards, we were approached by a man who was from Australia, who had been a very senior and influential politician in the state of Victoria. And he told us that he was very impressed by the power of, of what this mother had said, uh, to the extent that he was determined to go home and introduce legislation in Victoria in Australia to give those bereaved or severely impacted on by car crime the opportunity to avail of restorative justice. And he went home and the mother and I were both contacted three years later by a legislator in Victoria to tell us that uh, they had run a successful pilot and the legislature in Victoria had introduced legislation, as that man had said, to give those bereaved and impacted on by car crime access to restorative justice. Mm -hmm. So the point of, of telling you that is that that work and that meeting eventually caused ripples literally right across the world. Mm -hmm. And I think if, if, if we work on that basis and take those risks and work with restorative values, it could create far-reaching ripples for this mm -hmm. society. Do you believe, David, there's a model within restorative justice um, that could be used in a wider truth, reconciliation, whatever name or label you want to put on it process? Here, you know, you're up close with this work. Is it something that you could see widened out? I think it has the potential. It is my experience that many people who've been harmed don't want retribution. They just want the truth and they want to know what happened to their loved ones. And if they are given that, uh, and perhaps some restoration in the way of an apology, many, in my experience, are able to, to move on from that point. And I think if you extend that to wider society, 
it has huge potential and I understand it is driven with difficulties, but that basic principle I think would apply uh, and would serve as the basis for something that I think could make a, a huge difference. And on a human level from being up close to, to people involved in it, like what does it give those people? What do they walk away with? They walk away with a great sense of contentment uh, that they've, uh, their voice has been heard. I mean, just listening to people is a very powerful thing to do. And they feel empowered. They, they, they feel that the, their voice has been listened to and they feel able to, to get on with their lives. I mean, one example that has stayed with me was the woman of a, a young child who was abused, sexually abused by her, her grandfather. The child had learning difficulties and just when you think it couldn't get any worse at his trial, the, the grandfather had indicated that the, the child had encouraged him. So um, many crimes have ripple effects. And one of the ripple effects of that offending was that the, the girl's parents couldn't find a way forward uh, to deal together with the offending and they separated. So the mother was, was left with, with this young girl who'd been abused and who thought somehow it was her fault and she was not doing well at school she was wet in the bed um, and her mother in despair approached us and uh, the upshot of it was that she came to the prison and got a letter from the grandfather to his granddaughter and basically the letter said he had done a very bad thing. He deserved to be where he was and it was nothing to do with his granddaughter and she wasn't to worry about it. And the mother went away with that letter and when we contacted her um, sometime later, she said that her daughter was doing much better. The bedwetting had stopped. She was doing well at school. But for herself, the mother said that when the offending was discovered, um, her world turned to black and white. But when she was driving away from the prison with the letter, the colour came back into it. And that, as I say, has stayed with me. Such a difference uh, was made to the mother and the daughter. Uh, and they were able to move on with things in, in the most difficult of circumstances. David, you mentioned um, that we're at a delicate point um, in, in our history and then just in terms of the current set of circumstances we find ourselves in. In terms of some of the unspoken pains that you notice within the prison system through those you work with and also those who are within the prison um, as well, what are some of the hurts you're noticing at the moment that are feeding into this difficult moment? I think it's extremely important to bear in mind that since the Good Friday Agreement, um, two prison officers have been murdered um, and many others have had to move home because they have been targeted. Uh, so that's, that's an issue for, for people in the prison service. That makes prison staff wary of the community that they're in and that is not a way forward. So that threat has to disappear completely to help that section of society to move forward. But I think if the threat is withdrawn in a wider sense, I mean, it's not just prison staff, but there are many people who 
have been murdered since the Good Friday Agreement, and that has to stop. That threat and that violence has to stop before we can move forward. David, you are um, very close to retiring. I just wanted to ask you what your hopes are for the work that you're involved in with restorative justice. What what do you want to see um, happen to it? There has been some work going on in the past few months that, that I hope will will bear fruit on a wider basis within uh, the prison system. And what I would like to see is for restorative practices to be embedded in everything that the prison service does, not just as a bit of an add-on to particular circumstances now and again, but if we can get restorative practices embedded into everything we do, I think we will be uh, an even more effective organisation. What is your your hope for society as a whole in terms of the home you want us all to live in? Um, what's what's your, your vision for the, the society you'd like to see for the next generation? I would like to see a generation growing up who have no experience of of what we have been through. I would like to see our schools becoming integrated. Uh, I'm very heartened by the fact that so many schools now are sharing uh, facilities. My understanding is that that is working very well and that um, schools that are not currently sharing are coming forward and saying, we would like to do this. And I think that points to a way ahead. And I think if, if we work particularly with our children and have them grow up together rather than apart as we do now, I think that would give us much greater hope going forward. Mm. David, brilliant. Thank you very much for your time and your honesty and for being willing to share your passion and your burdens and the power of your work as well with us. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. So big thanks to David for sharing all of that with us just as he stepped into retirement. I think you really get a sense of the burdens he carried and how he channeled that in those restorative justice encounters he speaks so passionately about. So as I do, each time I'll wrap this episode with a poem based on David's story. It was the 90s and some hope was stirring, but toxicity was alive and well too. You felt it each and every day. Your place of work, a pressure cooker, the threats, violence, intimidation, and an edgy awareness that decisions made inside could tip fragile balances on the outside. Your voice strains now as you recall it, and as prisoners walked, you watched with a mix of feelings, but overriding it all, a hope that this was a new start how you needed one too. You began again and what grew was a passion for justice full of restorative encounters and the moments of grace came. The mum who lost her daughter in a car crash but wanted to meet the man who was driving and know the truth of what happened. Each moment like this, sacred to you, you saw its beauty and power, the colour that came back for people. And now as you step out of work, you long that their courage would be a gauntlet for the rest of us to take the risks that peace and change demand. This podcast has been made possible through funding by the Social Change Initiative and our gorgeous soundtrack was composed and performed by the brilliant local artist 
Fierna. Last word to you, just to say thanks for listening to Peace by Peace. Hopefully it sparks some new conversations. I'll chat to you soon. Bye.